I'm curious if you all can guess some of the most important factors that go into people's decisions to eat a particular animal. If they have, if they are unicorns, we should not eat them. Why not? What's what is because it about magical beasts? Ah, okay. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone as confused by the latest health study as I am by Chris Gill. And why did me. I say Chris Gill? Because I'm leaving. I'm leaving. This is the, the, the question is, why am I going? But I'm leaving Boston University. My official last day is, is June 23rd, 2023. And, and we'll talk about it more in the wacky but weird section where I'm going to talk about the wacky and weird reasons that I'm leaving, uh, sort of. But anyway, I'm Chris Gill from the Departments of Global Health and Global Health, uh, and I'm joined here by Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health at and Boston environmental University. Health. And Thank environmental you. Health. Thank you, Chris. And Dr. Matt Foss from the Departments of Global Health and Epidemiology. See, this is what happens on his last day. I let him do the intro, <laughs> and here we are. As a reminder, head on over to the Public Health Exchange website, www.pophealthex.org, BU's Hub for Lifelong Learning. And another reminder, go rate us on iTunes and all your major podcast sites to help others find us, such as, what is that, Dangler, Ding, Dinger? Stitcher? Stitcher, no, the one that the, the Texera, the U.S. Air Force that's guy. Not Discord? That's Discord. Not, that's not a Discord. podcast app. Well, that's, you should that go over Discord. to Discord and see all our latest episodes. There. I don't think you're going to anyway, have any luck there. I'm going to pass uh, this back to Matt, okay. who's going to do the rest of this intro. Beyond which, we also have to know that it is not www. And that is still in my notes just because I knew it, but it is just pophealthyx.org, right, Nick? There's no, there's no, what? It doesn't matter. You can use the www, but you don't need it. That is, that is the key point. Okay. So as Chris said, this is Chris's last episode because- How many, this is episode number 135. I think 134, 135. 135. 135. Yeah. And I haven't been part of all of them, but, but you've I've been, been part, part of a lot of them. them. Yeah. A hundred seems like a lot. Oh, I, I just think it's fantastic that even That's though- a lot of blabbering. Even though you're leaving, For you've agreed hours and hours to and continue on with this podcast forever. Is that what you said? Um, yes. In fact, I was I was willing to, to make a weekly donation mm-hmm. <laughs> to the fund, mm-hmm. the yeah. M. Fox Fund. Yeah. All right. So Chris, unfortunately, <laughs> is leaving us. We will, as Chris says, we will talk about it more later. But we are very sad to see you go. I'm sad, and too. it has been such a, a fun time working with you. It has been fun. It's really been one of the most fun things about being at this school is, is doing these podcasts and getting to know you guys better and having an opportunity to just talk like science for, you know, an hour every other couple of weeks and just, you know, use our brains in the way that we were trained to do. It's really a pleasure. So. And your brain I'm, is very particular. I feel like I've learned weird, I've learned weird. so much from your observations, things I never would have thought of otherwise. Oh, well, that's kind of you to say. It makes me sound like I'm a weirdo, <laughs> but I, I appreciate that. I, I, and I have enjoyed the scientific rigor that you guys bring, and, and you always understand the methodology so much better than me, so I'm, I feel like I'm sort of trying to keep, play catch up on the, on the technical parts here. Well, it has been so much fun working with you on this. I do have to say I'm a little concerned. You know how when the, you know, when like a president gets a second term and they, they don't have to run for office anymore and people worried about what they're going to do when they're completely unleashed. Oh, I'm no. a little worried what's going to happen on today's episode. Now Will that they become lamb ducks. Now that <laughs> lamb ducks. Isn't it lamb ducks? I don't think so, Chris. Oh. Don't know. What, I, I thought it was know. something to do with Easter. It no? does not. Okay. So <laughs> I got to, we got to move on here. So we do have another, we do have another rating that I want to read. So this one is entitled favorite podcast. Do we get six stars? Five, unfortunately. 
It says, I love this podcast. I'm really glad I came across it. I am a BSPH student. Does that, I don't know if that's B-U-S-P-H and it's just missing the U or if that is the B is referring to another university, School of Public Health. Buffalo School of Public Health. (laughs) There could be, right? It could be some other place. I don't know whether this is one of our students. Maybe Berkeley? It could be be lots of different places. But Bonn, Berlin. Berlin Bern. definitely could be Berlin. I know it was a I, means of de-identification. It definitely could be Berlin, actually, because I have worked with Belfast. folks at the Berlin I, School of Public Health. So it actually could be. be. Yeah. Could be. Uh, and I love that this is a source of information that keeps me engaged, and I get to hear different opinions on public health topics. The topics slash episodes stimulate me intellectually. The hosts keep it interesting and funny. The only constructive comment or feedback I have is I would love to get through an episode. Without Jess getting interrupted, which fair enough, we we do do that, do do uh, that? a fair Isn't amount. Of, yeah, we do. Yep, yep. So I that is I accept that as a fair comment, and I appreciate that feedback. So that's from Al Ruiz via Apple Podcasts. Thank you very much for that kind feedback. I think it's a fair point. Yeah, fair point. Okay. Thank you, commentator. Yeah. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study on the health effects of coffee. And I'm just going to say right up front, it better be good news, or at least not bad news, as a long-addicted coffee connoisseur. So in the second part of the podcast, our deep dive, we're going to talk about the commercial determinants of health. And I don't know how that we have a lot to say on this one. I just thought it was interesting. It's not something I'd really thought a lot about, despite the fact that I probably should have. So it seemed worth chatting a little bit about. And then in our last segment, which is our amazing amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud, or we just find... Amazing. In segment one, we're going to get into an article that looked at the health effects of coffee published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was entitled Acute Effects of Coffee Consumption on Health Among Ambulatory Adults by first author Gregory Marcus of the Division of Cardiology at the University of California, San Francisco. So if you had lines on this one, Newsbreak 25, which is a, a television outlet, says no increase in premature atrial contractions with caffeinated coffee consumption study suggests. Doesn't say, mm. it suggests. So, you know, this is very interesting because, you know, premature atrial contractions is such a technical term that to, to lead with that in a lay article, I, I think most people would not understand what in the world that was that didn't happen. Yeah. And is that good or bad? I would agree with you. So then maybe you will like the second one from CNN, which says coffee drinkers get more steps, but also less sleep, study finds. Wow, shocker. Which is true, <laughs> but is that the main finding from this study? I don't know. I find the more steps, the more steps is a little bit. Interesting. Less sleep is not surprising. I have a theory about that, but we'll come back to it. And then the New York Post says, the good, the bad, and your coffee. Study exposes risks, comma, benefits. They didn't read it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, Chris, can you you tell us what they did in this study? So, uh, as my my last, probably last, uh, unless you bring me back as a guest sometime. We will gladly bring you back as a guest. I I would enjoy that. So, let's let's not say goodbye. Let's say, uh, au revoir. uh, Au revoir. (laughs) Is that what people say? Because those French. Yeah, those French have have a a different word for everything. So anyway, Steve Martin reference there. It's going to be a long episode. episode. So this was a a randomized control trial looking at the acute effects of coffee, mainly on (laughs) cardiac rhythms. So this business is about premature atrial contractions. For those of you who have not studied cardiac physiology, you still probably remember from your, your biology labs in high school that there's 
upper set of chambers called the atria, and there's a lower set of chambers in the heart called the ventricles. And the ventricles are the muscly bit that drive most of the blood through the body, and the atria are sort of where they're sort of like the priming pumps for the ventricles, but they're also where the electrical signals originate that drive the rhythm of the heart. And so a premature atrial contraction is when, you know, the normal beat is supposed to be lubbed up, lubbed up, lubbed up as you, these sort of two things are happening. And then instead you're having a lub lubbed up, lub lubbed up. That would be sort of the, the equivalent of that, that the atria are beating out of rhythm and therefore probably driving the ventricles to beat a slightly out of rhythm. And the concern is that this, you know, could lead to more serious arrhythmias, such as rhythms that lead to sudden cardiac death. So the, I think, you know, let's be honest, I don't think there's anybody out there who really thinks that, that coffee causes sudden cardiac death because that would be bad and it would also be obvious. But they wanted to see, you know, does the consumption of caffeine on a regular basis lead to these sort of subtle arrhythmias in the heart? And so they used what they call a case crossover design. And I think you're going to quibble about the technical uh, terminology used there. But the g- basic gist of it was that they enrolled 113 people or they screened 113 people. They enrolled 100. They then randomized these 100 individuals to receive at 8 p.m. on the night before every allocation, a text message saying whether the next day they were supposed to go out and seek coffee or the the next day they were supposed to go out and avoid seeking coffee and not drink any coffee. And then every day they would basically randomize. So every participant in this study was both an active and a comparator participant in the trial, which is kind of an interesting idea. But also leads to some limitations in terms of what they can what they can say. For example, they they can't really comment on the chronic effects of coffee or abstinence from coffee because everybody is using coffee or not coffee on average every other day. So th- the way they did this study, which was super clever in my view, was to fit each individual with a whole sort of panoply of weird devices to monitor them. So one of them was a step counter to see, like, I guess, you know, if you drink coffee, do you walk around more? My guess would be yes. And another one would be a sleep monitor. Do they sleep less? My guess is yes, they probably would because we know that that's what caffeine does. Another one was a halter monitor, which is a, a, a continuous cardiac monitor, which was basically looking for these different kinds of arrhythmias. And they were primarily concerned with something called premature atrial contractions. And that was their primary endpoint. But they were also looking at premature ventricular contractions, which is when the ventricle beats without being told to do so by the atria. So that would be sort of an aberrant beat and slightly more, in theory, more pathological. But they also looked to see if the if the heart was having runs of what are called sustained supraventricular tachycardia, which means that the upper part of the heart is telling the lower part of the heart to beat way too fast. That's why it's supraventricular because it's coming from the atria. Or ventricular tachycardia, meaning that the, the ventricles are going on of their own and just doing their own thing without the atria telling them what to do. But either of those rhythms are, in theory, risk factors for sudden cardiac death, but of course we're not really concerned about that because in truth we know that PACs and PVCs and non-sustained runs of ventricular tachycardia, supraventricular or otherwise, are pretty common. And most of these are benign and we don't, you know, we don't even notice them except when we put people on rhythm monitors in, in the hospital and we see these happen these things happening all the time. We go, oh, but it turns out these are just sort of normal things that happen. But the question is, does caffeine accelerate the, the development of these outcomes? Another thing they did was to hook them up to a continuous blood sugar monitor to see if caffeine would drive their blood 
sugars up or down. Mm -hmm. And then they also had them load an app on their cell phones so that when they were randomized to go seek coffee the next day, the app would follow them using a geolocator that had apparently mapped all of the <laughs> coffee shops this in really San Francisco. Really so funny, they knew yeah. where they were. And then they would they had to actually go in and they say, you know, I have especially click, I have a I have just had a, a, a triple latte macchiato or something with extra foam. I love this aspect of the study. And this oat is milk. so great. <laughs> it's the oat milk, guys. It's, it's all always about the oat, oat milk. milk. So and then they followed him for some period of time. I don't remember how long. It wasn't that long. Uh, 14 days? 14 days. Yep. And then that was the end of the experiment. Pretty cool experiment, I thought. Super neat. Oh, they also did a, D, a, a like a DNA yeah. analysis looking at, at polymorphisms associated with the metabolism of caffeine. So are you a slow metabolizer, <coughs> meaning that you're particularly susceptible to the effects of caffeine versus a rapid metabolizer, meaning that maybe you can drink more caffeine and have less of an effect? I don't know. To see if that would mediate into these these other these other but primary moderate. secondary out, moderate some of these primary secondary outputs, and so they did this, and what they found, and I'll just go through the table. They found that of these hundred enrolled individuals, the median age was thirty nine years. On average, they drank about one cup a day. Their adherence was judged to be okay, meaning that there were some crossovers in both directions. That on non coffee days, they went and drank coffee anyway, which you could totally see. <laughs> you're, like, you're telling me I'm not allowed to have coffee today? You got to be kidding! I've got that meeting. You're like straight to Starbucks anyway. So they, <laughs> there, there was definitely some not adherence, and conversely, they people sometimes were told to drink coffee and didn't drink coffee, I guess. But generally, the adherence was pretty good on these days when they were supposed to drink or not to drink. Now, in terms of their outcomes, the primary outcome was the, the number of premature atrial contractions per day. And in the coffee arm, it was 58. And in the non-coffee arm, it was 53 for a relative risk of 1.1 and the confidence intervals bridged one. So effectively, no difference between the two groups. In terms of PVCs, there was a slightly bigger effect with 154 daily events in the coffee arm versus 102 in the non-coffee arm and a relative risk that was statistically significant of 1.5. There were very, very low rates of supraventricular tachycardia or sustained ventricular tachycardia of 0.17 and 0.2 respectively, no difference. And for SVT was 0.01 and 0.01, so really like no difference. So in terms of the scarier rhythms, there was both of these events were exceptionally rare, but there didn't seem to be any difference between them. In terms of the number of steps they took each day, it was 10,646 for one group and 9,665 for the other group. And I, I will leave it to you to guess which of those groups drank coffee that day. Coffee drinkers <laughs> stepped more. You're right. For a delta of 1,058 steps per day with pretty wide confidence intervals. But anyway, turns out coffee drinkers walk a little more on their coffee days. And I will just you know drop out the hypothesis is that Perhaps that's because they were randomized to go find coffee and they had to go walk <laughs> I, another thousand steps to go find their cup of coffee. It, 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 in theory, could be. It could be simply to go to the Starbucks as opposed to going to the office instead of making a stop at the Starbucks. It definitely could be. I don't be. know what this is supposed to prove. For, so I, I thought this was the weakest part of this paper, frankly. Minutes of sleep. Guess what? It was lower in the people who drank that coffee that day, but not that much lower. Only 36 minutes a day less. I was surprised. But uh, they only drank one cup a day. Yeah, and, I was going to say, the, that doesn't sound to me a surprise. And in the table one, you know, they talk about the distribution of coffee intake. I, I, I was these, stunned these are low, by this. Low, low coffee drinkers. Like, who are these people? Are they actually representative of San Franciscans? <laughs> I don't buy it. Because the, 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 like the number of people who drank two to three cups per day was only 22 out of the 100. And I'm just like, wait a minute. I drink four to five 
cups a day. Easy. And there was only three people who were like me. But I'd like drink gallons of coffee each day. This is my main source of, of <laughs> nutrients. Chris, Chris, how's your heart? It's tacking away right now. I can feel it <laughs> vibrating. Anyway, I, I don't know. I was I was surprised at how little coffee these these people drank, and it made me skeptical of them. Okay, oh, skeptical of them as, as people. Like, what kind of people are are these people? Like you think they were not being truthful when they reported their coffee consumption, or, or their sample was biased? Well, like pod people who live in San Francisco and don't drink lots of coffee. What is up with this? So these anyway, are just people you wouldn't want to hang out with. Are, I don't know, it seems. Fishy. So they slept a little bit less, yes. And then their glucose levels were spot on, 95 milligrams. No difference. Versus 96, no difference at all. And so the conclusion is that coffee doesn't have much of an effect on anything except sleep and steps. And maybe premature ventricular contractions. What that means clinically, totally unclear, but not very scary. And so, if you're worried that it's gonna like coffee is gonna cause you to suddenly drop dead of a you know weird arrhythmia, I don't think this study is suggesting that that's gonna happen. I don't think we believed it would beforehand, given it's the most popular drink on the planet practically, and most people don't die after they drink a cup of coffee. So it seems very unlikely this would be true. But there's no evidence that it, we should be worried. People walk a little bit more. Maybe that's because they're more agitated. But maybe. That's because they had to go to the Starbucks to get their coffee. I don't know. And sleeping less? Yeah. <laughs> Kill surprise. <laughs> so okay. I'll leave it at there. All and right. then, then and of course, we cannot comment on the chronic effects of coffee because it's like every that, other day they're doing something else. So what I want to know is like, what about the people who drink five cups a day every day? I think we got to cut. That's the question. I think that's important. That's the question. Jess, what's your, what's your take on this one? On the whole, there was there were a lot of interesting things about this paper and a lot of a lot of different endpoints and various, you know, sources of data collection, which was something going for it. And I think, you know, I was struggling with why was this paper published in the New England Journal? I feel like we've asked this of other papers that I we've read that before. Too. Kind of what was what was the hook with this one? Got it into the New England Journal instead of somewhere all of my lesser. <laughs> instead, why is this paper better than all of my papers is the question. <laughs> and um, I mean, I, and I, I, you know, I think the ubiquitousness of the exposure of coffee drinking is probably it. But, but beyond that, like, you know. It was a, it was it was a neat paper, but I wasn't like totally blown away. And also the findings maybe were yeah. not that surprising. I don't think the eyebrows were raising were being raised a lot in terms of increased coffee drinking is associated with more movement and a little bit less sleep. sleep. Um, I, I had you know, I, I feel like the fact that there were only 100 people in this study was something that gave me a little cause of concern as I was reading through. And like you said, the question is, do they fully represent people who are coffee drinkers? If that's, you know, they are representing, in my view, people who are moderate to low coffee drinkers, but there was not that much representation among people who I, many of whom I know quite well, who are intense coffee drinkers who you might actually have a concern that if there was say a dose dependent relationship between coffee drinking and some of these cardiac endpoints, you're not going to see them in sampling people who are drinking one cup. You know, you're kind of getting the majority, which is good. But if there is a relationship that is small or an association that's small, in effect, you might not see it in a population of 100, despite this crossover design. I would say I'm a moderate coffee drinker, but even as a moderate coffee How drinker, define moderate? Yeah. I define it maybe one to two cups a day. Oh, okay. Otherwise I get too edgy, to be honest. Like Same I'm too here. edgy. I get yeah, my, my by wife the evening gets up I can't sleep. Like five in the morning and she brews an eight cup pot and she pretty much drinks the entire thing before I wake up. Wow. That must have to do with that gene of like how quickly you metabolize it. 
Yeah, can can, can like we stop yeah. here? Because I have an issue with the definition of a cup of coffee. Right, I know. To me, a cup of coffee implies a mug of coffee. Okay, so maybe it's a three mugs as opposed to eight mugs. Yeah, it's probably more like three. Yeah, because we, we, we get up in the morning, we brew ten uh, the 10-cup pot. We split it, my wow. wife and I. We always there's always some left over, but that for me only ends up being two mugs. Oh yeah, and so yeah. good point. We're I, not talking you know, about demitas, right? Cups, right. right. So right, okay. I don't know. We drink the little. I don't even know what it's called. That little the stovetop little machine mm-hmm. where it's really it's like espresso, like it's really strong. Oh, and yeah. so and it's, it's like classic. I don't drink that much of it, but I think it's pretty intense. This is my husband's Cuban coffee. This is like his Cuban roots in the coffee. So I think it's probably much less than yeah. a mug, but it's pretty potent. But, but, but the intensity is probably right. The intensity is there. Do you, do you titrate to like the number of megahertz of your hand vibration? Oh, yeah. You're like 60, 60. Good. <laughs> we can stop. You know, when the strobe lights effect disappears, you're like, we're, we're there. Yep. Absolutely. (laughs) But so the question is, even as a moderate coffee drinker, if I was thinking that if I participated in this study and I was, you know, and you're said, okay, in the evening you're, you get a text and it says you can't drink, you're not going to drink coffee tomorrow in the study. I'd feel that like there'd be effects of that. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be a totally neutral experience. Even. No, but I'd have I'd have like withdrawal symptoms, even yep. as a moderate coffee Absolutely. drinker. I'd feel it on that day. And then probably the second day I get headaches and you just kind of feel a little lethargic and right. And I, I apparently sleep more <laughs> and sleepy and don't walk as much. And so, yeah. Do, don't you think that is part of why they did this amongst the low level coffee drinkers? Because if you are drinking 10 cups a day, you're not going to sign up for the study because you're going to feel the next day if you don't have any coffee, you're going to feel withdrawal symptoms and it's going to be unpleasant. That's probably true. But I still, even as a moderate coffee drinker, would feel those withdrawal symptoms. And I wondered how that played into any of their endpoints here on the non-coffee days, or if it was totally irrelevant to their endpoints, which maybe it is. So it sounds like we're all kind of dancing around the question of like, to whom are these results most pertinent? Mm -hmm. I, I guess it's the moderate you know, to occasional coffee drinkers who are worried if I go to Starbucks and have a a venti latte, what's that going to do to me? And the answer is not much. And these are also pretty mobile people. If they're having, was it 10,000 steps a day? These are pretty active people, urban people. Yeah. Yeah. So can I, can I riff on that point? Yeah, I I think that's the the key. So first of all, Jess, your comments fit so well with exactly what I had written down. I mean, I, I almost, you hit about, nine of the 10 points that I wanted to raise. I think the part of the problem, because I too was surprised to see this in the New England Journal. I get it. It's it's something, it's a, it's a topic people care about because people drink coffee. There has been a ton of observational research on coffee, which is always, that's always sort of suggested coffee good, but you know, you sort of wonder because it's observational and people have put it in your head that observational study can have you know, can be problematic, but a hundred people in a clever design, crossover design, cool, very, very good. And we should probably be explicit, very good because it minimizes the amount of within person confounding. So anything that doesn't change is consistent across. You get really good confounder control. That said, of course, being told that you can't drink coffee might cause you to do other things that might affect your heart. That isn't exactly confounding. That could be a mediator. But anyway, things could change. But I think your point, Chris, about who does this correspond to or who does this 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 generalize to also gets to the, to the question of there are an infinite number of questions you could ask about coffee consumption because it's a high-dimensional 
exposure, right? You could have, we could ask the question, what is the effect for a person who drinks one cup a day to drink zero cups a day? Or what's the effect of drinking two cups a day or three cups a day? And you could have this continuum of number of cups a day and we could find that actually going from one to two doesn't matter, but going from two to three does matter. Mm -hmm. Or alternatively, it could be going from three to zero could actually be worse for your health. Mm. But but these are all short-term questions, which have no they, long-term meaning. They have right. They've they've limited themselves partly because of the design, but also I think partly because of the way they wanted it to do this study, to hypotheses that are what is the effect of that cup of coffee on your health, your heart health today, versus right. what are the effects of consuming 10 cups of coffee per day for 10 years, right? That is a very different cumulative question that doesn't get addressed here at all, in part because, as you say, they've only got the very low-level coffee drinkers in this study. And maybe the effect of, of a cup of coffee versus not a cup of coffee is different in those who drink more coffee. And when only have 100 people, you can't really break it down into how are these effects modified by the number of cups of coffee that people drink regularly or versus cumulatively over time, which is why I was also sort of skeptical of their DNA analysis, which I thought was a nice addition. But with only 100 people, you're not really going to be able to detect differences between those groups. So I, I thought it was interesting, but I think it's it's pretty limited in what it tells us. Yeah. I also wanted to crunch some math on this because while, while you were talking, I was sort of thinking about the PV, the PVCs, right? So uh, I have PVCs. You have PVCs? Yep. Yeah. So PVCs are very common. Like I, I can tell you in, in medicine, you see them all the time and, and we, you know, we worry about them in certain contexts. And most of the time we don't worry about them because they seem to happen all the time. Mm -hmm. And I, and I was thinking like here we see a Delta of 50 PVCs. That's the most like scary sounding you know, of all their, their outputs. So, you know, let's assume you're doing like 75 beats per minute times 60 minutes times 24 hours. Your heart beats about 110,000 times a day. So an additional 50 out of 110,000 works out to be an excess of 0 0.0005 beats per extra beat. For every, I'm doing the math right here, every 200 beats, you get an extra beat. I think that's what the math works out. Or every 2,000 beats, you get an extra beat. So it's not very much. Yeah, although I, I could I could see, though, that that maybe that's not the right comparison, because if we, if we think that the effects of coffee are short-term, really, the entire day isn't relevant. It's the oh, hour yes. after you consume it. So is it how many beats would there be expected right. to be in that hour? And what is the half-life of caffeine? Yeah, right? because you're not expecting the caffeine to have impact, say, Five hours later, maybe. I, th I think the the, the half life does. of caffeine is like is something like six or seven hours. But let's let's let us quickly consult uh, Wikipedia, the Oracle. But right. that's that's well, where that genetic analysis that? too, though, would have had you know, in terms of looking at the timing of when someone metabolizes coffee, to be looking for that, even though it's short term, to kind of look in a little more nuanced way at that window of expected effect, yep. which would have been an interesting thing. It's about five hours do. is okay. the half life of caffeine. Okay, so so maybe five hours is, would be a reasonable amount of time to compare. I, that's actually yeah. longer than I, I guess I would have thought. They say three to seven, but maybe that's the the range is is based on your metabolic, uh, yeah. you know, makeup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in any case, their mediation, moderation, mediation, moderation, moderation effect came up with nothing. 
It, it did, although, again, with 100 people, I'm not sure you've got enough people to really say anything. Good point. One other thing I wanted to raise on this is I'm also not on board with their interpretation of no increase in premature – what was the – it's not P, PVC. PACs, it's P, but PAC. The, the PACs, no. The PVCs, yes. Yeah, I'm not in agreement with the PACs. There were, there were more, but this is a case where you've got a confidence interval that overlaps one, but it's it's a point estimate of, of – 1.09, 95% confidence over from 0.98 to 1.2. Right. The question is, is it meaningful? Because it's between 58 and 53 yeah. per day. If that's not meaningful, then I then I would agree with their assessment. But they have a technically true statement, which is that there was no statistically significant relationship. That is a true statement. I'm just not sure. Like there, there is an increase. Well, and yes, we were yes. very close to significance. If you're really going to focus on significance, it's a true statement, but I wouldn't. Yeah. Rather, I'd want to know, is this a meaningful difference? And I gather from Chris, from it's really not. a clinician's perspective, the difference between 58 and 53, five extra PACs per day out of 110,000 beats or per, per day. Let's say per five hours. Per five hours. So divide that by five. So per 20,000 beats is doesn't seem very scary. So moral of the story is I can drink as much coffee as I want whenever I, think the I want. the moral of the story is that you can go back to eight cups a day and you're fine. <laughs> eight cups a day. I'm not going to eight cups a day. <laughs> well, what, what, can I just add one more thing about this study that I thought was interesting is there's many potential health effects of coffee consumption and they kind of chose this narrow channel of these, these kind of narrowly defined cardiac endpoints. And then they chose mobility. They chose kind of walking and sleep as two almost accessory endpoints. And there's many other secondary endpoints that they could have chosen that would have enriched this overall story. And so it was interesting to me that they, you know, they weren't looking at hypertension. They weren't looking at, they weren't looking at many other mm. health outcomes that you could possibly see might be associated with coffee consumption and then withdrawing from it. So I, I was interested in the constellation of their endpoints that were kind of narrowly defined. And then they had these two on the side that I almost wondered if they, they had investigated other things. And these were the two that either they thought were the most catchy or were two that stood out. Like I, I'd wondered if they also asked like mental health questions, for example, mm -hmm. how do you feel? How, you know, things about like your personal relationships or, you, you know, grumpy today. <laughs> you were grumpy today or like exercise that maybe wasn't captured in the steps or, other things. Eating I, I, more, eating yeah, less, right. compensatory there, behaviors. Right. There's many things. <laughs> chocolate on those non-coffee days. Did you exactly. smoke oh, no. more? Did you smoke more? Smoke. Did people smoke? smoke? Did you smoke more? On. Did you smoke more? Right, right. There's many things that you could have asked about. And I understand the limitation to the cardiac endpoints. And then there were like two on the side that seemed a little arbitrary to me. The, the blood sugar and... The walking and sleeping. The walking, walking and sleeping walking in particular. Sleeping. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't have a good sense for why they chose what they did. I mean, a lot of the, if you look at a lot of the research on coffee consumption, it, it, it looks at endpoints that you really couldn't measure in a 14 day trial. By the way, 14 days is another thing I think we'd have to acknowledge. This is a very short term outcome. I, I, I have to say, I would have found it more interesting if they had taken people who consume no coffee mm -hmm. as the group and, and seen what. The what addition of a cup of coffee, because you could argue, you know, the the folks have sort of sensitized to drinking coffee, and you know, a cup of coffee here and there difference doesn't make any difference. You get you get what I'm saying. So I think that would have been interesting. 
Mm. Any any last points anyone wants to raise? I still think the study was super cool. And mm-hmm. I, I think the reason the New England Journal of Medicine published this is because it was super cool. Just like the, 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 the neatness of all these electronic doodads following these people around and right. geolocating their coffee consumption and, and <laughs> measuring their heart rhythms and blood. Cl- I think that was all just like cool and the step monitors. I think all of this stuff actually comes down to the coolness of this more than anything else. Because in terms of the actual results, it was kind of like, ah, oh, whatever, nothing, not much. Yep. You know, yep. or so what? Okay, two two last things I I want to I want to say before we move on. I thought it was interesting that so they say measured coffee consumption at baseline. So before they start the study, they measured how much coffee they were consuming. Participants often drank more than their baseline usual amounts on coffee on days. In other words, days when they were allowed to drink coffee, presumably sort of making up for the fact that they had missed <laughs> like I allow myself two cups a day. Yesterday I got none, so I'm drinking three today or four today, whatever it is. That's what I would do. Second of all, I love the acronym for the study, the CRAVE study, which I thought was, I'm a a big fan of acronyms, as you know. That's a good one. All right, so let's let's move on to our second segment, which is the segment on We'll call it the commercial determinants of health. It was a study, a short article. Now I'm questioning myself. Was that one in the Lancet? Yes, it was. An, it was editorial in the Lancet, talking about the commercial determinants of health, and it was by the Lancet. And the reason I say that is because this was a comment that was talking about a series of, of papers that were in the journal on this particular topic. So we just looked at the the overall comment as sort of a a launching pad for thinking about commercial determinants of health. And they make some, you know, some key points, particularly starting off talking about COVID and how there clearly were commercial determinants of of health during the COVID epidemic. Just take vaccines alone, right? They were, you know, you've got a couple of companies that made billions and billions of dollars off of the development of vaccines, something that, you know, we were all experiencing a global pandemic. U.S. government invested massive amounts of money in this, and somehow companies end up with the patents to these, and the U.S. government comes away with nothing, or not nothing, but, you know, comes away, financially speaking. And so people are making a lot of profit off of people's, in this case, beneficial health effects, but also in terms of making money off of things that are harmful. So they note that there are four industries Tobacco, unhealthy food, fossil fuels, and alcohol, which are responsible for at least a third of all global health deaths per year, which is pretty astounding when you think about it. Now, I'm, I'm, I tend to be skeptical of, of numbers like that because I feel like they're based off of data that's hard to estimate, but also then these things interact. I mean, alcohol and tobacco, it's often hard to tell whether a death was alcohol-related or tobacco-related unless there's a specific, say, type of cancer that you might be able to point to. So it, it, it's hard to determine these. So they make this case for we need to think more about an agenda for recognizing the the needs to engage businesses to develop, you know, to healthier policies, healthier products, things like that. Many of us live in capitalist societies where companies are going to be free to develop products as long as they are not falling outside of where regulations exist. E.g., you know, the tobacco industry is is I want to say heavily regulated, but it's probably not nearly as regulated as it should be. Alcohol is regulated. Food is regulated to an extent, but not probably nearly as much as I think probably could be. And fossil fuels, eh, unclear. But within the realms of those, I mean, they're making a lot of money off of things that we as society like, but also create great amount of, of harm to our health. So 
how do we think about this? I mean, do we need, is this just a situation where we just need more regulation or, you know, I mean, fossil fuels, we probably cannot get rid of until we've made the transition to renewables, but like food, people are going to get very unhappy if you tell them they cannot have unhealthy food, right? I mean, people like unhealthy food, people like alcohol, People, uh, many people like smoking. So if we're not going to ban it outright, and we tried banning alcohol in the U.S., it didn't work very well. If we're not going to ban it, what is the solution to doing better? Because we're not going to do away with it. I thought one of the interesting things about this piece, I mean, we've heard this term before, the the commercial determinants of health, but it's kind of like relatively newly in our public health jargon that this is, you know, that there is industrial industrial demands behind Mm -hmm. the determinants of health. And and so I think that was that was part of this piece and this series was kind of introducing that concept that there's business factors that drive public health, even though those are things that those of us in public health are well aware of. I think that's that's the big the big challenge, though, is what you bring up, Matt, is the idea of how do you reconcile the commercial interests with what people want. Yeah. And and the, and the health interests and the health interests, right? That there's these, these, these business side interests and then there's consumer interests and those might align, but they might align in a way that from a public health standpoint, we think is unhealthy, right? The, the companies produce things that people want to purchase, but then the purchase of them at, or the production of them leads to conditions that are not conducive to better health. And how do we do that without being the heavy hand of government and kind of coming in and saying, you can't eat, you know, Doritos <laughs> and you can't smoke and, you know, and, and kind of that regulatory hand. I mean, the goal is like, how do you align corporate interests with public health interests? And I think in the, in the early pandemic that was like done really effectively with the vaccine development. And then it kind of fell apart when the issue was disseminating the vaccines beyond, you know, developed countries. But I don't know, there was a, I I think it brings up really complicated issues of intervention along different scales and what you can and cannot do. Mm. Mm. I had a similar set of thoughts. I'll just try to add to what you were saying rather than repeat. My initial reactions to the commercial determinants of health in the title of this paper is that it did feel like we're, we're, we're coming up with a new terminology to define old things, right? We've been talking about unhealthy foods and tobacco and alcohol and exposure to fossil fuels for a very, 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 very long time. So it, it's not like we're suddenly discovering something new. It is, a, it is a manifestation of something that we don't often associate with public health, but is nonetheless true, which is marketing and how we market the ideas that we talk about. So here, I think the Lancet is, is, is putting a flag in the sand and saying, we're going to market this thing that we're going to call the commercial determinants of health, but it is in no way a new thing. Mm -hmm. It is just clustering them in in an interesting way. Now, with that said, I felt that there was a bit of of an omission in in how they pitched this because, well, we haven't read the full set of articles, or at least I haven't. So I don't know what else they said, but in the editorial, they focus on these four industries as the the source of of major harm. And and I I have no reason to doubt that. Yeah, as the biggest sources. As the biggest sources of, of harm to the planet. But if we can take a big step and sort of think about what it is that we do in public health. And and I I say this to students frequently and with somewhat, you know, facetious intent. But I still think this is basically true that the public health largely comes down to three tasks. And I'm I'm, I'm going to put epidemiology and biostats as not being tasks, yep. it's rather tools so, yep. to achieve tasks. Yeah, yeah. I would agree so but that. in terms of the things that we do in public health, there are one, which is the focus here of trying to persuade people 
not to do things that they would like to do or to do things that they don't want to do. Yeah, we're the, we're the no fun group, right? <laughs> we're the no fun group. Right. We're the scolds, we right? We scold them so about— So don't smoke. Don't eat too much. Don't, don't have eat the wrong things. Sex. Don't have unprotected sex. Wear condoms if you, if you must. You know, exercise and don't, um, don't take drugs, yep. right? And, yep. you know, and we call that we're whole the, thing behavioral health. We're, we're <laughs> behavioral no fun. challenge. Yep. And it is very hard. And then the, the second one is like, how do we clean up the messy environment that we've created? That is your discipline. Uh, Jessica Liebler, environmental health. Why haven't you sorted that out yet? Uh, why haven't you fixed that? Yes. You've been here for right. how many, 15, 20 years? I know. Come on. And then the third one is giving medications. Those are the three things we do in public health, basically. Yeah. I, and I, maybe there's some more. There probably are some more, but those are the main three, right? And so here they're focusing on the first one, like the trying, all of these are examples of the first three, you know, are examples of behavioral change. Smoking, drinking, food. Yep. And then the third was environmental health, which yep. is, is the breathing the toxic fumes. Yep. And we talked about like the lead contamination in our last episode. But they do not mention the third, which is which is the another big part of the commercial determinants of health, which is the pharmaceutical industry. Which makes massive which amounts of makes money. Makes massive amounts of money, but actually creates a lot of products that in fact do keep people alive. I, I think your entire professional career not entire, but most of your professional career has been focused on how do we optimize delivery of HIV services in South Africa because these drugs save lives. Yep. You've taken a drug, a disease that is hundred percent fatal. You've turned it into a disease that is not hundred percent fatal. That is unbelievable. Yep. And so like, you know, that is a major source of health and we're, and we're not giving that part of this any credit in this debate. So, but that is certainly part of the commercial determinants of health is, is that like, in fact, there are things that are being done that are also good for us in various ways, mm-hmm. diabetes drugs and cancer drugs, and, you know, smoking cessation drugs and on and on and on. And, you know, now weight loss drugs like Ozempic. I mean, th- th- there's a lot of stuff going on here that is not given any credit in this editorial. So I just wanted to point out, I think that was a miss. And then in terms of like, you know, where do we go with this? Sin taxes or things That's that are thrown around. Go. Why don't you yeah. go with that? Because Well, I, no, I, 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 it seems to me that if we're going to say you know, hey, we're not going to tell people what you can, you know, choose to eat or smoke or whatever. I mean, we are, we have regulations of, of some drugs, but, you know, if we're going to say these things are, we're like, we're, it's, we're, it's not the government's job to tell you, you can't do these things. We could, we can say there are societal costs to these things. And so we are going to heavily tax them to, raise the funds to be able to deal with these problems. Now, to me, that works pretty well for for food, tobacco, and alcohol. It doesn't work very well for fossil fuels. I mean, you could tax fossil fuels, but people are going to still use them. And so unless you're heavily taxing them to encourage people to use less and then taking that money to invest in, you know, in renewables, I, I don't know that you're going you're gonna to see any short-term benefit. But long-term, you probably are. But in the short term, I mean, that we, we have looked at studies that show that the more you tax, you know, food or the more, you know, and not food, but unhealthy food, the more you tax alcohol, the more you tax tobacco, the less, less people, people use, it. use it. You could say it's, it's a regressive tax. You know, it taxes those with, with less income more. So I don't love it from that standpoint. But, you know, on the other hand, like if we were going to say – that it's acceptable to allow people to use products that are harmful, that you know society is going to have to bear the cost of. We we, I, I, I think it's okay to to tax those. There's also, I mean, in addition to taxing, there's also providing financial incentives to make a different choice in a way that is not 
directly taxing, but you know, but that also kind of puts a dollar value on. Can you give an example um, of how you do that? Sure. Like electric cars, for example, like, like a subsidy to buy an electric car to get some sort of money back or something along those lines where instead of having a tax on top of a negative purchase, you're having a reduced cost to make a healthy purchase or less tax rebate rebate or something along those lines. And so it's interesting to think about like, you know, as a discipline, like how coercive do we want to be and do we want to be overtly coercive or subtly coercive in terms of kind of manipulating, you know, manipulating people's choices towards big picture, healthier world, healthier choices, less, you know, more health, less toxicity. And I think these things are scrutinized now so much more than they were before the pandemic Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in terms of public health as this, you know, force behind the curtain kind of affecting people's purchasing and affecting people's decisions, liberties, liberties and freedom and and, and that social credit system that that many people I see on Twitter seem to be very concerned about. I, you know, I mean, we we have always had, I don't know always, but we have for a long time had a tax code that encourages certain things right. and discourages other things, right? We've had tax incentives in the United States for homeownership. We've had tax incentives for, for having children, right? Those are decisions that we have made as a society or as a government that we are going to incentivize people to either do or not do. So to do it around things that are you know, health related doesn't seem to be all that controversial. And yet it is incredibly controversial, it's incredibly controversial. And I think, and you know, public health in general, as a field, like we don't have the resources to launch a mass media campaign, it, it, you know, cause there's no cohesion and it's, it's a different, it's a different structure. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's a challenge also that even though I think the field is viewed as this kind of evil force behind the scenes, the amount of resources we really have to, to do any of this is, is not much. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll add, you know, to, to my taxonomy of the three things that we do in public health, behavioral change, environmental health change, and then pharmaceutical interventions. We have struggled for so many decades, maybe forever, to encourage people to choose to make the right decisions. And, and I, I think generally those efforts have not been particularly successful, whereas things that are built around incentives and taxes and things like that that are structural tend to be much more potent. And so I'm think, thinking like, you know, I just spent my, my my sabbatical year in the Netherlands. And for those who have been to the Netherlands, one of the things that, that you everybody notices is that everybody's riding bicycles. Uh, all the time. And that, you know, you go to your local train station and like my train station in Utrecht has a bicycle parking lot that had a capacity of 50,000 bicycles. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Right. And everywhere you go in the Netherlands, there are bicycle paths that are dedicated bicycle paths. So it's very, very safe and it's cheap and it is healthy. And you know, what a, what a sort of miracle of social engineering to pull that off. What is, the, what is another country you think of that bikes? And, uh, another country that bikes. Yeah. Denmark. Denmark. Is that the same? Our favorite country. What what do those two countries have in common? They are flat. Yeah, I get it. I think that makes a huge difference. I get it. It it does make a big difference. The climate is somewhat less... But, but you're not great. London's not. pretty flat. Rome is pretty. Fl- I mean, well, actually, Rome is kind of hilly. But there are a lot of places that are pretty flat, and and where you could you you know Boston is sort of flattish in parts. 
I mean, we could we could have engineered our city. I to, totally agree. To be I totally agree. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying. You know, I, mean, I do think that is a factor. You park your bicycle at Alewife. First of all, it's going to get you know they're going to steal the seat, <laughs> and second of all, there aren't any bicycle spots because they're all they only have like 50 spots for all these people that are and they have a bicycle trail that just ends there that comes from Arlington and Lexington. Yes. But it's a system. What you're saying is that there has to be some there social has to be system. A system, and there's and things that we have to decide. Right. You have to decide, and so we Long have term. systems too, like we chlorinate our water, like we have you know we have a sanitation system for example we don't leave that up to the user to say right. you know are you going to pay for this you know device that you then install in your sink to to clean your drinking water we're going to do that do on your behalf because they won't do it and so right and it's the same that if you asked an individual to say how much would you pay for a bike lane they might say nothing but if there's kind of a collective will it's it's not on the individual to make that decision and then there's systems that move people towards better health and yeah, yeah. yep all right, we gotta we gotta move on to right. our last segment, and I'm gonna go first this time. So I am curious, what would you say? What would the each of you? Neither one of you are vegetarians. No, no but I eat a lot of vegetables. What is the a strangest? I don't know what the right term is. Meat you've ever eaten? Strangest meat? Animal? Animal meat? Yes. <laughs> Pickled bee larva. That that is. I suppose that is technically. The meat? In the meat category, sure. Crickets as like an insect. Yeah, bug. okay, yeah, crickets. Yeah. I've, I've had raw whale. Ooh. Why raw? Why raw? <laughs> well, it was in Japan, and so they, were, see. they would raw. shave it thin. I've also had raw horse. Okay, mm, please ooh. send all of the angry emails to Chris, Chris yeah. directly. It was surprisingly tasty, by the way. This There was a YouGov survey asking questions about what are the factors that go into people's decisions as to whether it is morally acceptable to eat a particular animal. And I'm curious if you all can guess some of the most important factors that people said were important or very important, cute. I should say. Cute. Cute was was in there. Pets. Like, do people have them as pets? Pets was yeah. definitely in there. Yep. If they have, If they are unicorns, we should not eat them. Uh, why not? What's what is because it about they're magical beasts? Ah, okay. So let me do it. So so the things that people considered most or very important the most were whether or not the animal is rare or endangered. Oh, mm -hmm. Chris, that is why you don't eat bald eagle, right? <laughs> it's the only reason. <laughs> whether the animal frequently carries disease, people. People say crickets, crickets are, are okay, but cockroaches, I'm not eating a cockroach. Huh. People well, what will... about pigs then? Because pigs are very popular and they carry all sorts of diseases. What do they carry? They they are the source of swine fever and, and influenza pandemics. And, I don't think people people and, really think of it in that virus way. And Nipah virus and, so they, and don't, they, tapeworms. And they spread those, but you, don't get them, but you don't get them from eating them. Trichinosis, let's go. Salmonella? At least maybe not, no, 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 no. not right now. Tr trichinosis. Uh, people always worry about trichinosis. How many cases of Trichinosis are there in the United States every year? Probably like close to zero. There are. I don't know the number, but it's it's very rare. Like you should be much more concerned about not undercooking your chicken. Yeah. I think chicken. than chicken than has pork. A lot of but bacteria, but yeah. yeah, you remember Paul Bolton, by the way? I do. Our colleague, Paul, he 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 had this 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 fascinating before and after photograph from one of his medical boards. And in the first picture is this, this guy who's like ripped with all these muscles with his shirt off. And in the second picture is the same guy with like who's looking like the skinny little weakling. From and, and you have to say like what is the diagnosis the answer was trichinosis and the first picture was before he had been treated and there was all muscle edema 
rather than muscles. Oh. So he looked like this weightlifter, but it was in fact just swollen muscles from uh. disseminated trichinosis. Okay. I'm not saying trichinosis isn't bad. I'm just saying. But it's just rare. rare. But Super my point rare. is, I, I think those are, you know, things that you get from eating the animal versus they transmit like swine flu and things like that. But anyway, whether the animal is commonly kept as a pet, sentimental attachment to the animal, so I'd go with cuteness there. Things on the lower end were animals' life expectancy, genetic similarities between the animal mm. and humans, mm-hmm. how much meat a single animal produces, and the animal's intelligence. Mm. I thought it was pretty interesting to to find out the reason why people consider it morally acceptable some animals over others. So which animals were unacceptable on, on that list? So most acceptable would be chicken, cow, pig, salmon, duck— but then they get into sort of deer, rabbit, sheep, or sort of in the middle. Octopus, right in the middle. Mm. Then the things at the bottom of the list, they asked about chimpanzee, mm. elephant, cat, dog, dolphin, guinea pig. Huh. Those were the lowest. Because guinea, guinea pigs are very popular in Peru. In Peru, but not in most of the rest of the world. Huh. Not very popular. We eat nutria, <laughs> which are like big guinea pigs. Who, who, who's we? Well, in, 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 in New Orleans, these are very um, popular. Okay. They're like giant swamp rats. They're okay. like capybaras. 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 Okay. Yeah. Oh, I need a capybara. In, in my early doctoral, when I was a doctoral student, I, I did some work in the wild, in the wet, the wet animal markets in China. Oh, and sure. it was actually fascinating to me at that stage, like how it's very cultural, what people will eat. Absolutely. Totally cultural. And in some of those, you know, the, the demand we're talking about kind of demand for food that, you know, the, the demand in some of those parts of China was was really broad, much broader than what we would demand here for different types of meat, different. And it was almost prized to have animals that were more rare. Dogs were purchased very commonly in a way that we don't eat dogs in this country. So it's very cultural. So interesting. I agree that it's, that it's cultural because I have never understood. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't get me wrong. I'm not going to eat cockroaches, but what is the difference between a cockroach and a lobster other than the size? They're they're basically the same thing, right? I mean, if you're going to eat a cockroach, you're going to eat the skeleton, which you're not going to do in a lobster. But to me, lobsters they seem, are saltier. They seem kind of similar. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's my that's my feeling. All right, Jess, what do you got? I I, I have one that like is a little bit embarrassing, but I was drawn to it because of this title in the lay media. So I'll read you the title in the lay media and then the actual scientific title. The title here is "How Some Beetles Drink Water Using Their Butts." Okay. Well, and I, I was mean, like, okay, I got to click on that. Absolutely. <laughs> I was like, absolutely. Clicked on that. Actually, it's an article in PNAS, which seems to publish a lot of these kind of yeah. offbeat, yeah. offbeat science stories that I tend to be drawn towards. The title of the actual article is NHA1 is a cation proton antipater essential for the water conserving functions of the rectal complex in Tribolium castanium which is a type of beetle. <laughs> and so I wasn't, ex- so one of the things that was funny to me is that I wasn't exactly sure that this was the author's take home point is that the beetles were actually drinking water from their butts. But what they, <laughs> what, what they, what they discovered is that there is a kind of a biological function in beetles that thrive in very arid environments mm-hmm. where there is an organ near the rectum that can distill water from humidity in the air. Oh, And so, so for a long time, apparently, it was identified that beetles could draw liquid from this organ through from their waste products. 
So their bodies would produce waste and then they would pull out liquid before it was excreted. Now they've determined that there is a particular gene that codes for this function of being able to remove humidity from the air uh. via the rear end oh. in this beetle. And the thought is that this and the beetles actually are one of the very few types of species that have survived through many. They're, they're very robust to climate change. They're very robust to the Big Bang. You know, they have. They've survived across millennia in different forms. And so they're saying maybe the, the ability to extract water through the rectum <laughs> is key to evolutionary Why survival. Not? Why not? So this was this was my PNAS article of the week about beetles drinking water. It wasn't exactly that they were drinking water using their butts, but the authors were looking to try to figure out if this had anything to do with like the adaptive success of this type of insect. The world is a weird place. It doesn't surprise me that beetles place. can do this. I've always been suspicious of Ringo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess that leaves it to, to to me to end up, and I don't have a, a segment per se. I was going to just take the opportunity to kind of give a long goodbye here. So the, the first thing I should explain is where I'm going is I, I am taking a position at the Gates Foundation in the vaccine development group. And exactly what that means, I, I'm not still entirely sure I understand the, the, all the parameters of the job. Obviously, it's going to involve a lot of, of work developing different vaccines around the, the, the world and considering strategic opportunities for unmet public health needs. I'm waving my hands a little bit because I think I will not really fully understand it until I'm in the middle of it. But perhaps this is a reason to come back at some point in the, in the future and sort of give an update as to, to what, what this has turned out. But I am excited and, and a little anxious about this transition, excited for the, all the obvious reasons, anxious because of the obvious reason that I am going to be at the bottom of a very steep learning curve again. And I anticipate feeling, you know, vulnerable and lost and, and uncertain for quite some time before I get my legs on the firmly implanted the ground and understand what, what the job offers and what I can do with it. So we will see where this goes, but it, it is a, it is a major change in my public health career, which I, I, I imagine will be the last third of my career. You know, our school has its motto, think, teach, do. Yep. And one of the beauties of this job has been the thinking in the teaching part, but not as much of the doing. And I, now I sort of feel like I, I want to transition to more do uh, at this point in my 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 career. So that's what I'm going to do. And, and again, I'll, I'll come back at some later point and tell you what exactly I did. I did want to talk about the podcast because, you know, we've we've been doing this for now, what, five years? It's quite I a long think time. That's right. I think that's right. I think 2017 is when we started. It's a long time. And yeah. it was a very good idea of yours. And so I want to thank you, first of all. I also want to thank Leslie Zalalian and Nick Guler, who have made all of this actually happen, um, supporting the concept and also, you know, managing the technical details of it and making it all sound so cool on the air. So, Nick, you're over there. Hello. Well done. We've really appreciated your work on this. You've, you've been great. Very much. So thank you again. And then I wanted to just say why I think what we're doing here is so important. Obviously, we like doing this podcast because it's fun. Yep. We love talking to each other. We love talking about science, all this stuff. It like it, it presses all our buttons professionally because we get to use our, our brains in a way that is fun. And it doesn't matter because we're not dealing with, you know, we're not funding ourselves. These are not public papers we're publishing. We're just arguing science for the pure joy of arguing science. And I, and I, and I, I do think that that exercise of just using your brain, you know, on random 
basically random topics that none of us mostly are experts in is, mm-hmm. is a really good thing to do. And I think journal clubs in general are great. And I think it's neat that we get to do this on air. But I also think that there's a meta part of this that is really valuable, which is that we all are engaged in this giant game of trying to figure out what is true. And I, and I don't claim that we get it right. But I do feel that there is a truth. There are truths to be found, and that the scientific process is is a is a powerful, important tool for finding that. But as we've said over 135 episodes, the scientific process is an incredibly messy and confusing and sometimes contradictory process. It is certainly not linear, but it is in fact the way things are done. You know, so the sausage making is messy and difficult, and you know, does not directly lead to a yield uh, in the way that we I think the, the pop. The popular wisdom holds science to be uh, that we you know we go out we find we report and that is the absolute truth is not it's not clear like that but I do think that that what we are fundamentally trying to do is to is to is sort of you know wiggle and jiggle our ways generally in in you know towards the true north of understanding things because of the assumption that if we understand them we can we can solve them if, if we're talking about problems and that knowledge is power. And I, I think that that is, it is so important. I, I think that the skills that we're trying to impart to our students in terms of being critical about the scientific literature and not just believing everything that is published in The Lancet, but actually having the responsibility to read and think about and judge yourself, that you are not in any way exempted from the responsibility of being skeptical at all times. I think that that message cannot be more uh, important uh, to our to our role as educators, is telling our students that they have to think at all times, mm-hmm. that nothing is just true because the Lancet says so. That is not the way science works. And, and so, you know, listeners, please hang on to that. There was this paper that I, I had found that I circulated around cold and defensive merit in science. So they, we, we're not going to go into it because it's very controversial, but it, it, it does, you know, raise some concerns about some of the directions that have been going that are somewhat anti-science within our field, I think, where, where there are, there are, there's a movement out to challenge the idea that there is such a thing as objective truth and replace it with more of a postmodernist approach where everything is up to one's personal experience or a personal subjective, you know, interpretation of truth. And, and I, and I feel that that is, is, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about sociology and perspective. I'm talking about that notion that there is in fact, no truth that everything is subjective really does worry me. Mm. And I, I hope that we can, we can have a sober debate about that at some point. But I will leave it there and just say that I've, I've loved being part of this group. I've loved being a faculty member at Boston University. I'm going to miss this tremendously. I'm going to miss you all tremendously. It has been a great ride, and, and I wish you well. And I will continue to tune into the pod and listen to you guys as, as you carry on. So Whoa. thank you all. What We are going to miss you tremendously as well. What a great way to end. Thanks, Chris. Well, that is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at PopHealthEx. And maybe Nick is still checking that. I don't know. Or you can <laughs> find us on the Population Health Exchange website at PopHealthEx.org. We want to thank Nick Guler for sound editing and Mark Takakchi for editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you will download our next episode. Oh, and I should say, our next episode is going to be a, a tribute to Chris. So we're going to take a, a, a little bit of a break. And then Jess and I will be back over the summer and we'll talk about what's what's coming next for us. <laughs>